Welcome, everyone, to the Scaling New Heights podcast. My name is Joe Woodard, and I will be your host for today's episode, where we will be talking with Peter Hickey, the founder of Mouse. Now, Peter is a best-selling author, and he's the designer of a number of multi-award-winning business tools that are now used by more than 60,000 companies around the world. He won the Ernst & Young NSW Entrepreneur of the Year Award in 1999. Now, as I mentioned, he's the founder of Mouse Business Systems. It's a firm that started as a business consultancy and grew into a software company. The company was listed as one of the BRW's fastest growing 100 private companies in 2000, and it was successfully built from a one-man business to a multi-million dollar concern. The business was acquired by a multi-billion dollar pu publisher before Peter reacquired the business six years later. Mouse now has one of the largest ranges of cloud-based SMB management tools and business advisory tools in the world. I know Peter personally. He is one of the leading minds in the world on preparing small businesses for succession. Today's topic, Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Joe. Great to be here. Well, Peter, this is a big topic, and I think it's a very important topic because you see, especially in the United States, an unprecedented, unprecedented opportunity for us to consult with small businesses around succession. What's driving that opportunity? Well, I think the uh, is incredible opportunity. Over 50% of business owners are now over the age of 50. So that baby boomer uh, sort of transformation, 54 to 72 years of age, the baby boomers are. Um, now, if you consider that there were last year in the United States, there were 595,488 business exits. So what does that mean? That means that during this podcast, uh, in an hour, there's 286 businesses that exit. Now, if over 50% of all business owners are over the age of 50, then that represents a huge opportunity because when you get to that age and you're starting to look around at retirement, you need to really have a plan. So you need to have a plan for how you'll transition out of the business and what you'll do afterwards, whether or not you're prepared for that transition. And the biggest problem that I think we have in the marketplace is that 76% of business owners plan to use their business as a primary source of retirement or they can't afford to retire. So some business owners, you know, they're either not thinking in that direction or they have thought at the, at the top level of that direction and, and just haven't got a plan together. Um, so, you know, research is, is, is discovering that UBS has done research to the mid market, which is a little bit outside where most of our small business advisors are, that 50% of business owners have at least thought along the lines of an exit succession plan. In our small business market, we're finding that less than 20% of business owners have a plan at all. Um, and when you consider also that only 20% of businesses that get listed on the market uh, actually sell. So you've got this huge opportunity for us to go in and educate these business owners on a plan to move from point A to point B of a successful exit and you know, sort of out of the business, transition out of the business. Well, and it sounds like there's a real contradiction here between people's intentions and their actions, because you're saying that 
most small business owners are, are seeing the, the asset they're building of their small business as a cornerstone of their retirement strategy. But you're also saying that most small businesses don't have a succession plan. So it, it, this seems to me to be not just an opportunity, but almost a mandate for small business owners to assist them. But Peter, I would imagine a succession plan is a pretty complex um, document. I mean, what what's involved in writing a succession plan? What's involved in developing an exit strategy? Yeah, that's a good question because an exit and succession plan really involves three components. So the first component is about business readiness, business value readiness. So it's really having a look at the value of the business now. Um, does that fit in with our requirements of, you know, having enough liquidity to exit the business? What could the business value be down, you know, in one year, two years, three years, five years, whenever our retirement plans are? And then how do we get there? So how do we de-risk the business and how do we improve the value of it? So the first part of an exit plan is that business value readiness. The second part of an exit plan is really about personal wealth and risk. So if you can imagine, you've got a valuable business, but if you haven't done proper tax planning, you know, you're only going to get, you know, sort of a fraction of that back in what we call net proceeds. So it's about tax planning. There's, there's, there's um, uh, a huge number of business owners that are forced to leave the business, death, disability, uh, divorce. Um, so so there's, there's all sorts of reasons that may be forced upon us that we may have to leave the business. So in, in that situation under this wealth, uh, personal wealth and risk, we need to look at our tax, uh, sorry, at our insurance, uh, whether or not we've got a, a, an emergency continuity plan in place to actually exit. I mean, probably the, the third leg of this exit and succession plan is really all about our um, personal wellness. So it's personal wellness, pre and post the exit. Now there's another really interesting stat that um, if you look at the baby boomers that have retired um, over the 12 months, so in an audit or a survey that was done of baby boomers that had actually exited the business, 75% of those baby boomers regretted, profoundly regretted the decision to exit the business 12 months later. So you, you sort of think why, you know? Um, why would you regret to, you know, why would you regret retiring? Why would you regret leaving the business? And, and I think the problem is that people aren't prepared for this, you know, transition into retirement. You know, if that's where the baby boomers are, they're, they're transitioning out into retirement. So, so we need to consider that. We also, you know, if you go from working from 14 hours a day down to, uh, uh, you know, sort of to zero, then, you know, it's, it's, it's a mindset. So there's a whole preparation that we need to do. So it's, it really is quite a, a, a complex um, a subject. But, you know, the good part about it, Joe, is that let's say you're a small business advisor. And let's say, you know, just having a discussion with your client and saying to them, have you ever thought, thought of, you know, selling or exiting your business, transitioning out? You know, how will you do that? Will it be a, a transaction to a, to a third party? Do you want to get your family involved? Um, you know, what sort of, what, what will that transition like? Do you want to build and grow? Do you want to get private equity and build the value of the business further and accelerate it? So those sort of questions on one end are really important. But if you're the, 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 the business advisor and you're asking these questions, 
there's almost, and this is the opportunity I think for business advisors, is that there's an opportunity to consult with the business owner on you know, being, the, being the project manager, being the quarterback of all these complex issues that need to be put together. But the other opportunity is, you know, all the, all the advisory that comes from that. You've got tax planning, you've got legal compliance, financial and wealth planning, insurance, you've got IP, you know, lawyers getting involved, business valuation advisors, estate planning, private equity, HR. Um, so you've got all this advisory work that can spin off from a good conversation with the business owner moving forward. Okay, so all of that seems pretty comprehensive. And if I'm to put my mind into the mindset of a typical bookkeeper or tax preparer, I'm overwhelmed. I'm thinking way too big of a task for me. And I have my finger over the button as I'm driving down the road waiting to turn this podcast off. I'm going to wait for the next episode. But hold <laughs> on, folks. Don't turn the podcast episode off because what Peter said here at the end is, is critical. There are a lot of moving pieces to this. There's a lot of expertise required. But what Peter just commissioned you to do is to play the quarterback, or you could say the orchestra conductor. You probably have the strongest relationship with your client professionally than any other professional with whom they work. You engage with them more regularly than any other professional with whom they work. You have a relationship with them that's deeper than anybody else with whom they work. And so in the context of that relationship, that deep level of trust, you can orchestrate their relationships with all the other players. And when you do involve that lawyer, that lawyer is going to need a lot of financial information and you're right back in your wheelhouse. When you deal with the personal wealth managers, they're going to need a lot of financial information. You're right back in your wheelhouse. And then the HR information, the payroll information that, that Peter just talked about, right back in your wheelhouse. Um, but Peter, there are a lot of things the accountant can book and bookkeeper can do beyond the tax return and beyond the financial reports too. What are some areas where a, a, a small business advisor who's got a financial background, what are some specific ways they might be able to both prepare a small business for succession and increase the value of that small business prior to succession? Yeah, good question. Okay, so if we, if we look at... Um, if we look at this, this sort of plan and we look at the business value readiness, uh, there's, there's two sides to that business value readiness. One side is what we call de-risking or making the business appear to be an attractive, well-run business that any future business owner could take over and continue to make the profit uh, that the existing business does. So that's, that's what we call de-risking. Now, and, and the second side is value enhancement, which I'll get to in a second. But if we just look at that de-risking, how do we de-risk a business? Well, typically, and this is where, you know, sort of the, the, the typical small business advisor that, that's listening to this podcast, things like policies and procedures. So making sure that the company has a documented set of operational policies in place, um, making sure that all the contracts are in place. So things like customer contracts and supplier contracts are in place. Um, the, the, there's things like um, the, the accounting system and making sure that, that that's systemized, that that leads back into the CRM system and that everything is linking together in a cohesive, uh, you know, and, 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 
consistent manner. So the, so the small business advisor can make sure that all of those parameters, you know, sort of are in place. I think also, if it comes to value enhancement, the one thing that, that you know, I get excited about when I talk to, uh, you know, small business advisors is that, that most, business, most business owners are reviewing their sales and profit uh, on a monthly on a monthly basis, or they sh- or they should be looking at their sales and profit. I think what we could start to do is educate these business owners that hey, let's get a checklist in place, let's get an action plan in place, let's get a series of things we need to do, and let's set up a meeting on a monthly basis where the small business advisor will be at the meeting as well as the business owner and some of the key staff, and and you become like a an advisory board, like a coach, like somebody that says, have you done this? Have you done that? Have you done this? And it's, and it's just really keeping the priorities right in front uh, so that the company's moving forward. I think also, Joe, that, you know, I think we underestimate that, you know, as, you know, in our, in our role as an accountant or a bookkeeper, we're used to monitoring numbers. But I think we can sort of broaden those numbers we're monitoring. So instead of just monitoring the sales and profit and the working capital, uh, cash in bank, we can broaden that to perhaps looking at um, uh, things like web visitors or conversion rates. So other metrics in the business that are important for the business to maintain that success and growth. And so, so I, th- I think there's a huge opportunity. Uh, and I think spinning off from that, um, all the elements, you know, we, small business advisors shouldn't be getting out of their comfort zone. So they shouldn't be involved in HR or equity or, or any of the things or valuation if they're not comfortable. But, you know, as you mentioned, there's spin-off work from that. So if you refer it off to somebody else, then you know what the likelihood will happen is that down the track, that particular advisor will probably spin off work to you. So being a collaborative advisor means, you know, there's a great chance of work coming back to you as you go out. And there's, you know, the more you collaborate on a skill set that you don't have, the more you start to broaden your own skill set, but the more and the better job that you'll do and the more professional job you'll do. All right, I want to come back to some of these key performance indicators because I have some ideas for accounting professionals when they're you know, building out their own succession plan to increase the, the value of their practice, which is a really big problem, valuation in professional services and accounting and bookkeeping right now. But um, I, want to, I want to get to this team approach because I liked the word you used, collaborative advisor. And I went to one of your seminars once and I was I was intrigued by the wide range of professionals who who were there. Hmm. My history is bookkeeping and accounting technology advisory work, but I was, I was first alone in that room. And then just about everybody sitting around that, that table is a very elite high end training, About everybody sitting around that table had a different background. And in some cases, a completely different type of firm. So if I'm going to be a collaborative advisor and I'm going to, I'm going to assist a client through succession. Who are some of the players? You mentioned the lawyer. You mentioned me. You know, my, my kind of group is the accountant advisor. Mm-hmm. Who else is in the room? Private equity. Um, you've got, if you're doing, dealing with uh, family succession, and you've got to remember there's, there's, there's quite a few businesses out there. 
um, you've got a lot of HR and succession issues, especially in that family sort of situation. Um, you've got the business broker. Now, the business broker um, is, or the um, business agent, you know, M&A in, in higher companies, they're really, um, they want to get involved with this. They want to get involved with businesses at the start, you know, as they're starting to think about exit and try and maintain a relationship. So when they do have that liquidity event, they end up with the, um, uh, you know, with the, with, with the job. So, um, you know, I think, I think also, you know, if you look at um, uh, marketing, uh, strategic planning, so there's, there's lots and lots of advisors. There's even, um, uh, you know, when we go back to the lawyers. I mean, you know, we, we consider that a lawyer is, is, is going to need to provide advice perhaps in terms of intellectual property, you know, trademarks, um, whether or not contracts are suitable. So there could be different types, other, types of lawyers there too. Um, yeah, like state planning. Lawyers, estate planning, there could be uh, yep. intellectual property attorneys. And then the, the one that intrigued, intrigued me the most sitting at the room was a family counselor. And, yes. and, and I was thinking, what in the world is she doing here? But then it occurred to me as, as we were interacting back and forth, that this is a, a major event in the life of the entire family, especially when there is a family successor. And um, she was giving some of the horror stories of, you know, right after the deal goes through, a lot of times there's a divorce. And, mm. and, are, and, and you know, is the family prepared for that divorce? Um, and, you know, is this something that they've discussed beforehand or does it just completely catch the business owner by surprise? Sometimes I think it's because of the entire dynamic of the family changing from the workload to the non-workload. And that's been such a, sort of a third person in the marriage all along. Or it could be just, the, the sudden increase in cash, you know, a lot of, yeah. a lot of times uh, of winning a lottery will tear a family apart, things like that. So, and sometimes the, the kids take different sides and the, and one parent sides with one child. I had a lot, a lot of discussion with her during the break to figure out you know, what's your role here, but you, you hit all the key players. And if we can assemble those players, we can definitely guide the client uh, through the process. And I also heard you say, sometimes we're the player that gets brought in. So we're not the quarterback, but we want to make sure that we're getting work referred to us too. So as other people are assembling a team, we're on their team. Really, either way, coming or going, we can play a critical role in the process. I want to get back to accountants for a second um, because you, you mentioned the connection between value and systems and process and the, and the connection between value and intellectual capital. And right now in the United States, accounting firms are – are trading at about a 1x multiple. Maybe if you're lucky, you'll get a 1.5. And that is often, the funny thing is, off of revenue, not off of EBITDA. And I just had a conversation this past week when I was speaking at the Ohio Society show. An accountant walked up to me and said, I'm not represented well in this process. She was in her 70s and she said, I've spent my entire career building a practice that is highly profitable, highly scalable. It has systems in place that automate much of the manual process that other people are, are performing. And my profit margin is three or four times higher than other firms in my category, yet mm. I'm getting the multiple off of revenue. And I, my reply back to her, after having gone to your workshop, Peter, by the way, my reply mm. back to her was, don't sell your client base only. Sell 
the systems and process and automation that generates that kind of profit. And if your current buyer kicking your tires doesn't want it, find a buyer that does. I mean, because I've, I've had conversations with many of the top 200 firms in the country, and many of them are struggling with this very thing. Sheep's achieved what they consider to be the elusive holy grail. And, and I told her some of them might buy you and not even care about the client work. They'll take them and take good care of them. That might be ancillary. They just want that process. Mm. Because if I'm a regional firm and, I'm, and I've got 100 professionals and I'm doing millions of dollars in billings and I can do a 4X on my profit margin, even just in some business groups, what is that worth to me? And, and it just goes back to, to that, that comment you made about helping us to build it, the intellectual property that lives right now in the gray matter of the business owner to turn that into intellectual capital. And I'm kind of rephrasing what you said by mm. democratizing it through systems mm. and, and, mm. and especially for professional services. I mean, if I'm a software company, I've got invention, right? I've got mm. copyright. I've got code. I've got something I can tell. You went through that. You had a multi-billion dollar company buy your asset, right? Mm. Um, well, I think, I think the, point, the point there, Joe, that's, I think the best point there is that explains it is that, you know, it's, it's very hard in, in any industry there's really a range of multiples that's set for that industry. And, and the accounting profession is, is the same as that. You know, it's a, there's, there's a methodology, a range of multiples, and it's either of revenue or profit. But, but if you just think about it, let's say there's an established range. At the top end of the range, you've got what you call your A-class companies. And at the bottom end of the range, you've got what you call your D-class companies. So for us to sell at the top end at a high multiple or the highest, we're going to be constrained by where the ceiling is. So that's, that's almost like a fixed point of where the ceiling is. That ceiling is derived over a series of transactions over a series of years. And whether it's not quite correct or whatever, it's, it's there. So that, that benchmark, that top level is normally there. So what we then need to do is if we want to look at what A-class companies do, we'll look at the characteristics of A-class companies. And so in, in our methodology, we talk about an attractiveness index of how attractive you are to a potential purchaser. So in the accounting profession, you've got to look at what defines that attractive business. Now, in the case that you mentioned with the lady that had a, you know, wonderful systems and processes, maybe to reach that upper end multiple, you need to be of a certain size in revenue. Maybe to meet, reach the upper end multiple, you need to have a different mixture of what your business makeup is. So it could be, you know, slightly different uh, twist on your products, you know, so whether or not, you know, you're just doing compliance work or whether or not you've spread your practice from compliance work into uh, wealth planning or technology or, or whatever you've, you've spread your, you know, sort of your range of income into. So, but I think the most important part is we define the characteristics of A-class companies. We then run a, an assessment over our business to see if we fit that A-class company. And, you know, when we work with businesses in the marketplace, you know, if they really want to be an A-class company, it might be a huge development that might take five years and may have a low chance of probability. But, you know, they could become a B-plus 
you know, you know, sell at a B plus range, and they only need to do some simple renovation. So we we almost talk about a time frame of, you know, and and that's where I think it's important to have the discussion. You know, where are you now? Where do you really want to go to? How emotionally do you feel about that? What do you think the risk of waiting for that period is? Is it feasible that we can build at this rate over a period of time? Uh, and then, then you start to make decisions, you know, and then, and then what is the, um, what are all my options? You know, cause, you, cause I think the, the first part of this whole process is the business owners, whether they be your, you know, sort of small business advisors, the accountancy firms or business owners just don't really understand the options and haven't clarified it into a simple one, two, three step plan. And they've got no one to talk to about it. So, you know, so the first part is just a discussion with a professional on the options. Well, and Peter, that gets me to my final point I want to make is this is a foreign process to both small businesses and unfortunately to many of the advisors who support them. It's a foreign process to many of the people listening to this podcast, both in preparing themselves and preparing their clients. But you've mapped this maze, right? And mm. and I've had the advantage of reading your book, going through an eight-hour workshop, and I want to just tell everybody that Peter has mapped this maze. And if you want to follow that map, if you want to get more information both about how you can insert yourself into this process with your clients and prepare them as well as to prepare yourself, you can find Peter, you can go to, to read his books, and you can get even some software solutions that he has that take the entire succession plan down to a one sheet action plan that Peter, I could walk a client through and determine that action plan in about how long, how long does that meeting take? Well, we can do a 90 minute discovery process and we call it about educated, you know, an uneducated goal. So in that 90 minute discovery, we draw out most of uh, most of the issues that then we work on over the next period of time in, uh, in, in developing that into an educated set of plans. Right, which means that 90-minute discovery session not only maps it out from A to B, it maps them A, but it also is a, uh, an engagement letter of sorts or a series Absolutely. of or launching pad for a series of engagement letters where we walk side by side with the client through the maze. And yeah, so, where can they go to find this 90-minute plan? Okay, so the 90-minute the plan is uh, Amazon has got a copy of the book, The One Page Exit Plan, written by Peter Hickey. Um, and we have a website as well, www.mouse, which is M-A-U-S.com.au. And then there's a little tab on there for advisors. Uh, they click on that and you'll see all the advisory tools and books, et cetera, that we've got. And you can find those same links to both the book and to Peter's website at watered.com slash podcast. Peter, great conversation. Thank you so much for being with us today. Fantastic. Thank you, Joe. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, thank you, Peter. And I want to say thanks to everybody that tuned in to today's episode of the Scaling New Heights podcast. Don't forget to check out watered.com slash podcast for additional resources related to today's episode and to learn more about the annual Scaling New Heights Conference. As always, we encourage you to stay tuned, stay connected, never stop learning, and scale new heights.